There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On Commons People this week, the end of lockdown is in sight. Today there really is. The end really is in sight. But Downing Street's in turmoil. It may be a reflection of the fact that Perhaps some people don't know what their purpose is now that Brexit is over. And Labour and the Tories reverse roles on taxes. That now is not the time for tax rises for families and for businesses. Prime Minister. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hi Arj. Hi Paul. Rachel Wearmouth's here. Hi Arj. Hi, Rachel. And we've got the former special advisor to the Chancellor, Sonia Khan. Hi, Ed. Hi, Sonia. Well, things are looking up after Boris Johnson published his roadmap for lifting lockdown this week. The weather's improving and people are looking forward to children returning to school, family get-togethers at Easter, pints in April and big events this summer. Intriguingly, the PM also U-turned on his opposition to vaccine passports, ordering a review to report this spring on whether people could be asked to show proof they have been jabbed to enter certain venues. Let's hear Johnson unveiling the roadmap on Monday. There will be others who will believe that we could go faster on the basis of that vaccination programme. And I understand their feelings. And I sympathise very much with the exhaustion and the stress that people are experiencing and that businesses are experiencing after so long in lockdown. But to them, and to them all, I say that today the really is, the end really is in sight, Mr Speaker. And a wretched year will give way to a spring and a summer that will be very different and incomparably better than the picture we see around us today. And in that spirit, Mr Speaker, I commend this statement to the House. Paul, in that clip, the PM referred to Tory backbenchers who want him to go faster in lifting lockdown. Is there any chance of that happening if the data kind of progresses a bit better than planned, I suppose? Well, the simple and short answer is no, um, because we've asked this to number 10 a few times and they've been pretty categoric in following up what the PM said, which is that um, these five week pauses between each of the stages, um, they're sort of non-negotiable. And even if the data looks like it's going really well, uh, they're not going to accelerate anything. Now, that's really interesting because it shows that they're finally listening to the, the SAGE scientists. I mean, it was very clear the SAGE documents that were released on Monday alongside the PM statement that they said, look, you really need a pause to assess all the data, see whether things are working, and only then can you consider even lifting anything, never mind doing things quicker. So I'm afraid that at the earliest, at the end of this process, June 21st is still the earliest date for everything. It could definitely slip by a week or two or more for each stage. And if you add onto each stage, then you could see that date going further back. But it's worth saying that the reason they've come up with those dates is they're pretty confident they can meet them. Because I think number 10, no, when as soon as you mention a date, everyone starts planning their lives around them. So for them to um, 
have to delay any of this would be so politically difficult that I think they've been ultra cautious and and that's why I think they'll stick to it. There is the other problem for um, uh, a lot of uh, Tory MPs on the back benches, which is, you know, if Scotland is going down the tiering route, which Nicola Sturgeon is, different areas are allowed to go at different paces. I think that could be a problem for the Prime Minister. I mean, already this morning, someone tweeted me that um, in their area on the border of Devon and, and Cornwall, there are zero cases in, and there have been zero cases in the past week. That's case cases, not even deaths. Um, and you can imagine the clamour growing for certainly some MPs saying, well, hold on a sec, why shouldn't we open our pubs uh, if there's no risk right now here? And I think number 10's answer is, well, the variant is so, it spread so fast, the rules have all changed, you can't do that. But I'm, I'm not sure that argument's going to wash. Yeah, I've spoken to several rural Conservative MPs who want to see the, the kind of regional tier system return precisely because of that reason they've been they've been behind in cases um, compared to other regions uh, for the whole pandemic. Um, Sonia, anyway, uh, the PM said on Monday that part of the reason for going slow was to protect people who don't take up the vaccine. But the COVID recovery group of lockdown sceptic Tory backbenchers said society shouldn't be held back by those who choose not to have a jab. Um, there's obviously a particular focus on BAME communities here, black and minority ethnic. So does this debate risk turning nasty? I think that the debate will have quite serious repercussions, if anything, more so than being nasty. And there's uh, a reflection of the fact that actually politicians are still out of touch with many, many communities on both sides. And um, I, I grew up in an Asian community and often the figures of authority are like religious, cultural, usually male uh, and people take their word as gospel. And I think uh, the government hasn't really been able to sort of penetrate those groups. And there's, there were local champions and it's a bit sporadic, but um, I think there's just no uniformity in policy in dealing with uh, people from BAME backgrounds. And it, you see that in the fact that, um, do you remember a few weeks ago, there was um, the special advisor on ethnicity kind of got into a bit of a row with Kemi Badenov. I think that's just you know, one reflection of the fact that nobody knows how to move forward and you kind of can't brush it under the carpet because a lot of uh, people, uh, mostly because they're told by their family that they should be doctors and they can't really be anything else, but a lot of them work in healthcare, so they work in hospitals, they work in frontline roles. Um, I was reading somewhere that actually in some hospitals, like less than a third of groups um, are willing to get the vaccine. So that stumbling block is always going to be there. You kind of can't work around them, otherwise you have this massive gap in workforce. Yeah, that's interesting. And the government's obviously launched a kind of, um, or tried to launch kind of BAME-specific communications. What, what, what have you made of their efforts so far? Um, I think the communications are nice and fine. And the government's approach is always to go like quite macro almost. But we sort of saw it in the um, Remain Leave campaign that you can get as many celebrities on board, but it doesn't principally kind of change how people feel, especially in sort of low um, income backgrounds. And you really need to get into kind of who are people listening to? Who are they taking their advice from? And it is these local figures. It can be a local councillor. It can be someone who's head of kind of whatever faith you're practising and whatever else. And I think having national faith leaders is great, but we haven't really seen a cohesive sort of local strategy. Yeah, and uh, Sadiq Khan said uh, this week or last week that the government's kind of culture war approach isn't helping in this area. Do you agree? Yeah, I think that's definitely right. There's really sort of conflicted messaging. Like uh, there's a sense that people are too woke now or it's um, much kind of too PC. And then 
there was a bit of a coordinated campaign to kind of almost do the opposite. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, and Rachel, the government's reviewing vaccine passports now. Do you think we'll see them being introduced? And that could obviously have implications for people who don't get vaccinated and in certain communities. Yeah, well, there's two different kinds of uh, vaccine passports. So there's sort of the international ones where you would sort of be able to go on holiday and win and that that that's kind of a separate thing to sort of domestic vaccine passports where you know you'd you'd have uh you'd have proof that you'd had a vaccine in order to get into say like a pub or an entertainment venue or something like that um and that that's sort of the domestic vaccine passports that are, are much more complicated it seems because this would go to um you know whether a business could discriminate against an individual because of say their disability or they're pregnant or because of their religious belief um, and I think that's kind of much more complicated than, you know, what we might earn or in negotiations with sort of Greece at the moment, for example, in order to have an international vaccine passport. But I think it, when it comes down to how individual businesses might behave or how an individual venue might behave, I think it gets a lot more complicated in terms of the legal, the legal picture. Yeah. Paul, do you think we're going to see vaccine passports introduced, domestic vaccine passports? And it's probably going to run into quite a lot of opposition from Tory backbenchers. I don't quite know where Labour stand on that, that because I, I might be a bit ignorant. But um... Yeah, it's, it's a good question, actually, because um, Labour have so far not given a position on uh, domestic passports. Obviously, they've got, they'll share everyone's concerns about discrimination. But at the same time, I think they know that they can't be seen to be against unlocking bits of the economy that might actually be unlocked by these, these passports. Um, it's interesting that when we asked number 10 about this this week, it was clear that they were they were sort of still in the embryonic stages of working this out. And it, it's also clear that they said, look, you know, current premises have every right for discretion on who they bar from their premises, you know, as long as they're within the law and discrimination, then, you know, and this would just be another form of discretion. And you can imagine, you know, you've got no right to be allowed into, you know, Soho House or, or a nightclub if your face doesn't fit, you know, for whatever reason, and you're in the line. Soho um, House, so Paul, very, very fancy. Is that where uh, you hang me. out? Is that where you're I've going only, when lockdown ends? I only ever been invited. <laughs> I'm not a member. But um, you can imagine if you're outside Fabric, for example, and you're in the queue and, and they just, you know, they might say, well, not you, not you or whatever. They've got a, and, and pubs as well. They have a discretion to bar people if they like. So you can imagine. But actually, I think where this will really matter, and Tony Blair's talked about this, is that the it might come from the public rather than from the government. The public might say, I actually, I want a totally free cheek by jail experience when I go to a nightclub or when I go to a pub or a theatre. I don't want to wear a mask. What's the point of doing that in a nightclub? If 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 this little uh, digital thing on my phone says that actually I've, I've had a negative test in the last few days, and which is separate from vaccination, so you're not forcing people to be vaccinated. If you can prove you've had a negative test, you've got a negative status, you can enjoy things like, you know, going on the terraces in a football match or something like that or going to a nightclub. You can imagine or even the theatre, that that would work. And then you have an authentic experience, live experience, which a lot of people are desperate for, let's be honest. I mean, there's not much point going back and do these things wearing a mask. Um, so I think that actually the public might drive some of it. And that, that could be really interesting. Yeah, it's interesting as well. You just wonder if as more people get vaccinated, how much pressure that timeline for opening up comes under. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, especially you've got Professor John Bell from Oxford, who's a big believer in lateral flow tests. He said uh, to a select committee this week that actually there was no reason. He said there'll be, there'll be pressure. You know, if once people are vaccinated, everyone's vaccinated, there'll be massive pressure to unlock things. Yeah. Um, go on, Richard. Labour's position seems to be that they, they support the international vaccine passports, but that they um, have a lot of unanswered questions about the domestic yeah domestic vaccine passports. They think leaving it to businesses might be a bad idea. And they um, are very worried about sort of no jab, no job, you know, like in the style of Pimlico plumbers who've kind of said that they they will they plan to ask for them. Yeah. So, I think it's the appointment type as well. And there's also the privacy issue that, you know, if you kind of, you know, I know a lot of privacy campaigners have a lot of concern about yeah. as well, whether it might end up being sort of, I think they've described it as like a, a backdoor to ID cards, basically. Backdoor yeah. That, that, they are worried about that. And I think that um, that's why I think separating the test from the jab is really important um, because you make a public health case, you know, for not wearing a mask at an event. And that's an option. In other words, as long as you don't bar people from public services or ordinary everyday services, if this is an add on to something special like a football match or a nightclub or something like that, then you can you can I can imagine the government will say that's up to individual businesses. And I can imagine Labour might even go for that, because at the end of the day, it's about protecting jobs of those people who are running those nightclubs and those pubs and, and events and, and running the t- turnstile in a football club. You know what I mean? It's interesting that because they can't just leave it up to businesses because presumably the government would have to facilitate it. Um, yeah, they'd have to give them some yeah. sort of legal, you know, indemnity if they do it. Yeah. yeah. And make but sure it's not discriminatory. But also provide the proof, I suppose. Yeah, that'd have to be a, a really common system. And that's why the, when, one of the most interesting things was number 10 talking about this idea uh, of the NHS app, not the COVID app, but the appointments app, which is much less um, popular. And it's, I think there's only about 5 million downloads compared to 20 million downloads of the COVID one, which is, you know, used to book appointments in your GPs and other and, and keeps your records on it. Now, that's Obviously, that covers a lot of the privacy concerns. It's it's up to you what you put on there. And I, I think I can see why they're going down that route. Apparently, um, they're really impressed by a similar system in Israel. Um, and not for the first time, Israel seems to be ahead on the tech. Um, Sonia, Michael Gove's leading this review into vaccine passports. Where do you think he is on it sort of naturally? I mean, he's being quite public about the fact that he doesn't like them. He didn't want them to happen. I remember there was a long period over the last kind of few months because, I mean, I work in consultancy now with business and they've all followed this so closely because a lot of them are, you know, global, they're multinational. They want to go see their people. They think a lot of business is best done sort of face to face. So they actually the international element bothers them. But they've been confused because number 10 spokesperson says it's happening Michael Gove says it's not happening then there's a story saying there's actually a pilot case in the cabinet office that's being led by a company called iProve and then you read the another newspaper so it, it's been a bit sort of um confusing but yeah he does seem to be a bit of a sort of natural skeptic on this but I think he's accepted that um the US now which is actually far further behind the UK on vaccinations is also thinking about vaccination passports so <coughs> We might just be pushed into it. And if you have no choice anyway, then you want to, you may as well be the global leader in setting whatever the standard is. So I suspect that bit's quite attractive to him, appealing to his kind of natural competitive instincts, wanting the UK to be uh, kind of the first ahead in the development of this and something his kind of department will really, really own. Quite a good sort of thing to have to hold against Matt Hancock when you're talking about reshuffle. Like you may. <laughs> 
some vaccines, but I got the uh, vaccine passports rolling out and the economy open again. Yeah, it's a yeah. good point, actually, because I think Sonia's right. You know, Gove is very competitive in lots of ways. He likes to be seen as a doer in Whitehall. You know, when he was at education, at least he was one of the few secretaries of state to actually do things to achieve um, for good or ill. At least he did things. And I think what's fascinating is that number 10, uh, Boris Johnson's decided, well, here's a big complex problem. I'll give it to you, Michael. Here's a hot potato. And 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 it might be that, that you know, having... St- Bipped him about various other things um, on Brexit. Um, maybe he just thinks, well, it's not as if he hasn't got a lot to do. But uh, you know, if Gove can make it work, then you know, maybe his reputation will work ahead of a reshuffle. And maybe there is that move towards the Home Office that people have talked about. Um, well, having said that, the Home Office, as everyone knows, is a graveyard for every politician. I tipped Gove for for the Home Office back in autumn when I wrote that piece about him. I just yeah, like yeah, to play that. Well, speaking of Gove and him being stripped of his Brexit responsibilities, Downing Street appeared to descend into chaos last week with resignations and infighting. First, Carrie Simmons' allies, Henry Newman and Baroness Finn, were appointed as advisors to the Prime Minister. And it started a chain reaction which saw Johnson's key Brexit advisor, Lord Frost, promoted to the Cabinet and taking over a lot of Gove's responsibilities, and the resignation of Oliver Lewis, head of the Number 10 Union Unit, after just a few days in charge. But former Tory leader thinks things have improved since the departure of Dominic Cummings. Let's have a listen. Yeah, I think there has been a big improvement, actually. And uh, I pointed this out recently. Uh, I'm not one for, I, don't, I don't want to personally attack the people who left. They were brilliant people, but maybe running government wasn't their greatest skill compared to running campaigns. Uh, well, now some people have been brought in who are very good at running government. You know, the, the prime minister has a new chief of staff. He's made other recent appointments. And it's it, you can tell over the last couple of months that government has worked better. There's been more um, under-promising and over-delivering rather than the other way around. There have been fewer rows. There have been fewer destructive leaks and um, side briefings to the press. You can just tell, you can smell it, that, that things have improved and the way things work in government. The public can smell it as well. Uh, Paul, can you explain what's going on in number 10 and why the Bow Group Tory think tank is calling for an inquiry into Carrie Simmons' influence in number 10? Well, it's, it's worth stepping back a bit. You know, why are we getting this sort of rush of stories about all the minions in number 10? Ultimately, the real reason is that, you know, we're in the court of, 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 of a king, King Boris. And when you've got a court, um, then the courtiers are the people who are, are talked about. Um, and the reason you've got a court is because there is no one, uh, and Sonia will know this better than anyone else, there's no one a rival power base, the prime minister in cabinet. You know, he's dominant. He completely dominates that cabinet, unlike any prime minister since Thatcher, I personally think. You know, um, Blair had Brown as a counterbalance. Cameron obviously had Osborne. Theresa May had everybody else, you know. Um, uh, But you've got Boris here. And Rishi Sunak, who, who, let's be honest, you know, the... You can sum up his relationship with Boris Johnson with that press conference where he went, uh, uh, thanks, PM. It was like a head boy to a headmaster, wasn't it? And it's not as if he's got the clout to stand up to the prime minister. And so when that happens, when you've got that massive dominance by just one person, then it is a court. And within that court, you've got people like Henry Newman, Baroness Finn, who are both very talented, by the way. I mean, it's worth saying that Henry Newman 
when he worked for Francis Maud, um, achieved a lot of things in government. And we were just talking about Michael Gove, but Maud actually did quite a lot of things within the machinery of the civil service, whether it's more transparency. And uh, Henry was instrumental in that. And um, he's a really important figure. He's also a good friend of Carrie Simmons. And there's certainly true, there's, there's a, a lot of sexism about the idea that somehow Carrie Simmons is this Lady Macbeth figure. Uh, the, the Bow Group, this Tory think tank, who've suggested that her role should be now opened up to uh, scrutiny. Well, there's a couple of things there. One is that the Bow Group um, isn't the old Bow Group. When, honestly, I'm, I'm so old. I remember when the Bow Group was this really respected organisation and people would go to it. And it was a slightly soft left Tory centre-left Tory group and since then it's become quite idiosyncratic and whoever runs it's become much smaller than it was whoever runs it gets its great platform because they can say whatever they like because it's the bow group but actually I think I'm not sure they're really in step with many Tory members in in suggesting that somehow Carrie Simmons role in all this is is really damaging and that there should be an inquiry into what she says and how she runs government because at the end of the day as number 10 have insisted you know Carrie Simmons actually uh, first was on maternity leave, but now is working for the Aspinall Foundation, the, the zoos organisation. So it's not as if she's working. She hasn't got a job in number 10. Yes, she's got influence. Of course she has, because she's an experienced uh, former Tory comms director. But um, that influence is ultimately overblown, I think. At the end of the day, we shouldn't forget the Prime Minister, all the book stops with him. And, and I think actually it's a cop out and it's too easy for him to say, is Carrie running the show? You know, yeah, of course he likes... Uh, other people to have an opinion but ultimately anything is, is down to him when it comes to Brexit or the union unit. Yeah Sonia what have you made of the wranglings in number 10? You've obviously experienced the absolute worst of Boris Johnson's Downing Street but that was when Dominic Cummings was there and and uh, and so on but what have you made of the last week or so of stories? Um, I, I feel like personally it may be a reflection of the fact that Perhaps some people don't know what their purpose is now that Brexit is over, given that was, you know, a prominent, if not the only feature of um, the general election campaign. Um, and the biggest challenge, um, I think, for Boris has always been, and I remember when I started as a spy in that government, which was like a long time ago now, was that there were very, very distinct factions that almost have their own objectives, that have their own way of working, their own relationships Um when we did the first ever special advisor meeting, it was sort of like almost like going to secondary school for the first time. So there was like a, a row of the old spots, a row of the kind of city hall team and then uh, the vote leave team. And you sort of like didn't interact. You didn't want to step out of your line into the other line because you might be branded. The, you're one of the other people. And I don't yeah. think there was ever an effort to kind of get over that or bring everyone together and say, right, this is kind of the PM's vision. This is what he's going to do. Like, this is how you fit into it. And people have sort of found their own role. Some of them have done that through the media and not. Um, and you kind of see that basically when one faction goes, it can be quite contentious if you're sort of isolated or sort of left out because you don't really know what you're doing because you're, you pledge your allegiance to almost like whoever leads your grouping rather than the PM. I don't know if, that, if I've articulated that well enough or if that sort of makes sense. Yeah, it sort yeah. of sounds to me like yeah. Boris Johnson hasn't really got control of these people under him to me. Well, I think that's why I think the idea of a chief of staff and deputy chiefs of staff so you can let you create real kind of accountability in that process, especially if you like centralise a special advisor kind of system is needed. And maybe we'll see that with sort of um, more political special advisors, so people who are a bit more aligned to kind of the political party coming in. 
Yeah, because he's appointed Dan Rosenfeld, who's completely non-political as chief of staff. Do you think that's a mistake then? Well, he's meant to be balanced out by kind of um, Baroness Finn and not many sort of civil servants, especially at the Treasury, go on to be um, special advisors. But I, I mean, I, I felt like his appointment was more about bridging the gap between number 10 and number 11, which you know, I've been in the middle of it. There's always great friction. But then that kind of leaves someone else to do the management of um, the SPAS and the HR. And I actually thought it was quite a good idea that they had Katie Lamb, who properly inducted people, because when you start, nobody ever tells you how to do your job. You don't, Sometimes you don't even get a job description. You sort of know there's a media SPAD on a policy SPAD. So now that kind of she's gone and that system's gone, it does leave kind of a bit of a gap to allow this sort of sniping to go on. So it is a... I think a hole that they want to sort of fill really, really quickly. Yeah, and obviously there's a policy issue at the heart of all this, Rachel, um, which is that there is currently, or there doesn't appear to be, or didn't until maybe today, a number 10 union unit. And that's one of the biggest concerns kind of facing the government. Yeah, because they've got the um, they've got the Hollywood elections coming up in in May, and every you know everything that's happening with Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmon, they'll want to sort of be on top of this as much as possible. So, but it seems that there's not only one union unit, but there's two that we found out in in, in lobby about today. So there's sort of like a um, an implementation policy unit, which um, will be chaired by Michael Gove, and will focus on um, the the government side of it. And then there'll be a strategy number ten unit led by the Prime Minister. Um, and we'll take in. We'll also take in Michael Michael Gove's leadership, and um, also take in Lord Frost, and that'll be more of a cabinet-led um, unit. So yeah, they're kind of trying to focus on it. But just kind of, I, I wonder if a lot of like all of these stories we're seeing about divisions and changing personnel and things like this. It's kind of it seems to be like a, a change in Boris Johnson, um, and because when he was a, when he was mayor of London, he was known for like delegating all of his work but um and i've read just numerous times over the last few months that like boris johnson has got to take personal charge of this and he's got to take personal charge of 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 that and i just wonder if he's he's not delegating there doesn't seem to be like like paul was talking about earlier there doesn't seem to be another power base beyond boris johnson at the moment and that is causing yeah a lot of infighting and we've seen a lot of that within the union strategy as well i think the thing about um, boris johnson is that he's it's almost like a sort of hands-off 1950s Darwinian father is sort of wants all the children to sort of fight it out and let them get on with it and they can have the scuffles and and it'll only come in if someone actually comes in crying with a sort of broken arm but otherwise it'll just let them on get on with it and I think that's the way he approaches you know uh, everyone around him he he likes a sense of chaos I hate to say it it's it's sort of he, he quite likes that and Ultimately, I think there'll be his undoing on in, in lots of different areas because it, you, you can't have a chaotic um, heart of government. You just can't. And that Dan Rosenfield is a really interesting um, appointment, as, as Sonia was saying. That is a, his massive treasury experience means that he can, you know, be a bridge with with number ten. But more, more than the bridge, I think actually, I think that means the PM, He can let the PM drive what he wants through the treasury because he knows all the treasury tricks. He knows the, the scams they pull. He knows the, how they try and pull the wool over a PM's eyes. Don't forget Rosenfield, you know, he worked under New Labour. It didn't just work under the last um, Tory administration. So he's he's very smart, but also I think he's coming up against the politics, the sheer politics of this now. I don't think, he, I think he looks like a real innocent abroad in the in the Tory wars that take part between the vote leavers and the non-vote leavers. So, 
that's difficult. And also don't forget the thing we haven't mentioned is that the real absence of grip ultimately partly comes down to the fact that we've got a new cabinet secretary. Simon Case is really well rated, just like Rosenfield, you know, really smart guy, but he hasn't got the clout to say to the prime minister like Jeremy Haywood would, I'm sorry, prime minister, you've got to do this. Um, and he doesn't have the same clout when he's telling a department, look, this is what you have to do. You know, everyone used to say within Whitehall, when you got an email from Jeremy Haywood, it was the word of God, you had to do it. And I don't think that's quite there yet. He's also got just so many competing priorities from his MPs. You know, he's got the Northern Research Group, he's got the COVID Recovery Group, and he can't really afford to isolate any one group. So he's got a lot of a lot of competing priorities on his backbenchers from his backbenchers as well. Yeah, that's very true. Sonia, I mean, bottom line of this is is this essentially the the vote leave guard, the the last of the vote leave guard being sort of moved out of number ten and the Carrie Simmons crew taking control with the civil service? Um, it sort of feels like it, but I wouldn't write them off just yet because uh, their skills are in campaigning. And at some point, a campaign is going to come back and that's the next general election campaign. So I, I think the Prime Minister is almost trying to balance that, keeping both sides happy, because you, you could actually be quite robust and say, like, I'm not going to have kind of any more briefing. Here, here is Here are the boundaries that I'm setting. Here's what access people are going to have. You can institute that discipline from the start. But I think he, he knows that he, he needs them back. And that's why, but kind of in this form of stasis where it feels like we can't really move forward because uh, there are two still quite influential groups who have a play, at least in the PM's mind. And actually, probably for a lot of people in government, given that they've got quite strong relations to that team, not least with... Michael Gove, pretty to tell. So I don't think you can lose the vote leave influence. Yeah, and I suppose ever. Lord Frost's promotion to the cabinet is evidence of, of, of that him still trying to keep that kind of side happy. But my favourite yeah, exactly. my, my favorite, um, story out of this series of stories of the last week has been, well, who you'd expect to be an innocent abroad in all this was Dylan the dog. He's <laughs> apparently a central figure. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have met this dog, but... Um, He's said to have a sinister edge and uh, apparently angered Dominic Cummings by humping his leg. <laughs> Such a great image, isn't it? <laughs> what a story. Well, I, I was fascinated by was the idea that Dylan with, at Checkers had torn everything apart, all the furniture. You think, crikey, who's paying for that? Yeah, um, indeed. indeed. One point I did want to make on kind of, do we think these factions could come back is, um, don't forget, A, Lord Frost needs, he's a cabinet minister now, he's going to get special advisors. And I, he's got a lot of leverage at the moment, so it'll be interesting to see who he picks. But also, special advisors become a negotiation in a reshuffle. And so if people are moved to places and they don't want to go, they could use that as a, a way to bring back people that have left. That's so really interesting. interesting to see in the summer. That's a very good point, really That's interesting. That's a very good point. Would you go back, Sonia, now that um, the uh, Ira of Sauron has disappeared? <laughs> uh, I think it's too easy. I, I really enjoy kind of my current job and I did five government departments. So there's not, I was thinking about this, there's, there's not really one I can go back into and feel like I'm moving forward. Yeah. Well, from number 10, of course. That's true. But <laughs> I have to say, I, I, I'm quite geeky and I do quite like um, a lot of the sort of like treasury budget stuff. But I also remember like the fact that I never got any sleep, weddings. Uh, pretty much every social event was interrupted and I can't like having my weekends back for <laughs> that is a good idea mind you if Sajid went back and there's a 
about him going back would you be tempted oh, I think it would it would depend on kind of what what role he got and what role he might see me playing but actually I'm quite liking being on the other side which is um dealing with the impact of kind of government policy sort of decision making and seeing how our business works how they engage government it's a side I haven't done I did the public sector straight out of um, university so yeah not immediately talking of the treasury uh it's a big week for Rishi Sunak as he prepares to deliver the budget next week. Uh, a few months ago, Tories were hoping this could be the time the Chancellor could break out of the straitjacket of COVID and begin setting out his plan for the economic recovery. But with restrictions continuing until June, Sunak is likely to again focus on support measures, including extending the furlough scheme to summer. The big question vexing Tory backbenchers, though, is whether the Chancellor plans to hike taxes to fill a gigantic black hole in the public finances while Labour is opposing any tax increases. Let's just hear Kit Starmer and Boris Johnson clashing on this at PMQs. But can the Prime Minister at least agree with me today that now is not the time for tax rises for families and for businesses? Prime Minister. Uh, uh, Mr Speaker, I don't know about, uh, about you, uh, but the, the budget is happening uh, next week. It's uh, not a date that is concealed from the... Uh, right, honourable gentleman. Often he knows when it's he knows when it's happy. He knows what it, what to expect. But it's preposterous for him, uh, Mr. Speaker, to talk about tax rises. When I mean, he stood on a manifesto uh, only a, a year ago, Mr. Speaker, a little over a year ago, to put up taxes by the biggest amount in the history of this country. Uh, Paul, we're in a bit of a weird situation going into this budget, aren't we? We've got Tory rebels potentially siding with Labour to vote against tax rises. Well, yeah, and um, we're in. <laughs> Yet another surreal situation, aren't we? Um, I mean, Starmer is so determined that the message he wants to get out, and particularly ahead of these local elections, is Labour is Labour's changed. Uh, and how's Labour changed? Well, it's not in favour of just whacking taxes on everything as being the answer to everything. Um, now, the big problem with that is their own 2019 manifesto had not just a, a range of tax rises, but unprecedented tax rises. And the central one, the easy one, was corporation tax going up. Um, and it, it does raise a massive amount of money, as Sonia will tell you. You know, it's it, just a, a few percentage points, it's billions that it raises. So in many ways, it's a low-hanging fruit for any Labour government is to just whack up corporation tax. Now, Rishi Sunak has seen same low-hanging fruit and thought, right, I'll take a bit of that, thank you. It's an easy hit. Business obviously will be furious in some ways, but actually maybe a bit relaxed saying, okay, we've got to pay a bit more. You know, um, maybe it will come back down again at some point. Certainly George Osborne will be furious because he set this, you know, long term trajectory to make sure that Britain with within or without the EU had one of the world's lowest corporation taxes. And so that Osborne agenda has been torn up. But I think the, the difficult for Labour is because it was a central piece of their manifesto. Are they really going to whip their MPs next week in the budget to vote against something that they just stood on a manifesto on to increase? Well, they might do. I'll tell you why. Because, again, it's all about changing their image in those small towns, uh, not just the red wall seats, but small towns up and down England uh, and, and Wales and Scotland, but particularly England that um, think that Labour is a high tax party. And if Labour can say at every local elections, look, we wouldn't put up your council tax as much. We certainly wouldn't whack taxes on anything. Now is the wrong time. We've got all these great um, uh, think tanks like the IFS, the OECD, everyone internationally saying putting up taxes now is the wrong time. It would choke off recovery. We're the pro 
enterprise bro business pro growth party you can see why starmer's doing that it's an, it, 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 i can get it i think the problem is as he'll find out and as we might report this afternoon quite a few um labor mps are not going to be very pleased with that um you know and you can see if you're a labor mp would you really say that you should lose the whip for voting on something in your own manifesto something this simple um and i think actually Although tactically it's quite good for, for Starmer in the short term, in the long term, the voters may just not believe him either because at the next election, you're going to see something like a wealth tax. You're going to see some serious taxes put on business from Labour. And what are they going to say? Well, we didn't believe it really back in 2021, but we believe it now. Um, I think the winner out of all this, though, will be Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson because they will say, look, we've changed. We think that business should have a play a responsible role uh, and actually they'll win because I think that if there is a substantial number of Labour rebels they'll get it through the budget to because those Labour rebels will counteract those Tory rebels who might vote against the tax rise so you know I, I wouldn't bet against uh, Boris and Rishi actually playing on with this. Yeah Sonia is, is this kind of another Covid budget and, and we, we shouldn't expect anything too grand in terms of uh, economic vision? It's a good question. And, you know, ordinarily I'd say yes, but I think the fact that the budget briefing has started a week ahead of the budget, which is so, so unusual for anyone who's not kind of a close budget watcher. I remember the days um, of having been a civil servant and a special advisor where you used to beg number 10 to give you two days on the grid because you just didn't have enough to brief and you wanted to keep good news in. So the fact that it's kind of a week out and normally this space would be for people to push campaigns or whatever else. Um, and lots and lots of big measures um, haven't been sort of like repudiated. They haven't been challenged. The fact that stamp duty um, on the Times from page kind of was just allowed to run, whereas a traditional treasury would sort of hit back on that, suggests that actually maybe it's bigger than all of us are predicting um, or expecting. Uh, I think Rishi Sunak, what the Chancellor normally does a Sunday round where he sets out kind of the broad vision. I think that will be really important to hear the language, not just on spending, which we've heard lots of, uh, but also on kind of what's his economic vision going forward. So he's had quite a few statements like this where they're very sort of short term, but the space most people are in now um, is what is the long term vision? Who's going to, I mean, firstly, are you, do you need to raise taxes? Are you happy with borrowing for a long time? Do you mind the fact that debt and the deficit are going up? Because that's a, like a fair question. And you might say yes, but that will change the sort of economic approach of the Conservative Party sort of forever. And I think one of his big challenges is, I think firstly, you're not going to get any big new taxes between now and April because the turnaround time is just too short and HMRC will never be able to implement them. So really, you're sort of looking at your autumn budget as like your tax budget. But that gap means you are leaving space for the people in your party who feel like they're not represented. They're sort of these fiscal conservatives who believe in low tax, free market and whatever else to sort of galvanize kind of a bit of a campaign and get some wind behind them. Um, and I was just thinking the other day, you can see the development of like another ERG, but like an economic research group, you know, partnerships with the think tanks, making the case for the sort of competitive uh, economy. So I think he's, he's going to have a real challenge when he starts to come to make some of those harder decisions um, if he does defer them to November, possibly. Yeah, interesting. And, and Rachel, I wanted to ask you about something Paul kind of mentioned there about why Labour is opposing even a corporation tax increase. 
I mean, Paul suggested that they want to, you know, win back voters in the Red Wall, but wouldn't Red Wall voters be quite up for a corporation tax increase? Um, I think it's, I I spoke to one advisor this week, and uh, I think Paul's talked there about some frustration among Labour MPs on this issue. But um, one of the advisors told me that um, Labour is is focusing almost like exclusively on a group he called the... um, LCBs, so who people at the last election who went from the Labour Party to the um, Conservative Party or the Brexit Party, and it's all focusing on on those groups and why they left Labour, and yeah, just as, as Paul mentioned, all of the concerns that they would have had about the spending that Labour was prepared to do and how it was going to do that spending. You know, was it going to mean that they just wouldn't have their job because? their job was being <laughs> taxed out of existence, you know. So I think, yeah, they're focusing entirely on that group at the moment, yeah. I think Rachel's right to, to mention spending because that, in the voters' eyes, tax and spending are almost inseparable. They're often really closely linked. So, you know, we know the academic argument that, yeah, okay, taxes can be raised and actually, you know, that's very different from us spending and investing or cutting. Um, but actually voters, you know, they view it like the household budget and Labour still hasn't managed to switch that. And I think that's, this is the whole admission this idea of we've got to push low taxes, I think is an admission of defeat that they've lost that argument on their, their, what they used to say under Ed Miliband and everyone else, which is, look, a household budget is very different from a national budget. Why don't you understand voter? You know, ever since Margaret Thatcher, it's always been Labour on the back foot because she said, look, this is like my household budget. What comes in, what goes out, you've got to balance them. Now, in the real world, obviously, governments are not the same as households. You can borrow much more. You can have a bit more flexibility. Um, but Labour's never won that argument. I think this proves that they're kind of conceding they've lost that argument. So they're doing this on the Tories' own terms. Either you tax or you spend or, you know, you, borrowing isn't really mentioned. Um, and I think Labour thinks that if they're seen as whacking taxes on one thing, the voters think they'll whack the tax on them as well. So what I think what you might see in the budget is Labour, if they're shrewd, they've got to win back key voter groups, white van, man and woman and self-employed. What what's almost certainly going to happen, and Sonia might know more about this than us, is that, you know, Philip Hammond got into trouble for, for the idea of floating, um, you know, NI changes for the self-employed. I suspect Sunak's going to bring those in. In other words, uh, I think uh, you're going to see the Tory government who are actually going to whack some of the the, the self-employed who've been hammered as it is in COVID, don't forget. And I suspect the people in the Treasury, they've long wanted to do this because the Treasury boffins say, look, on the one hand, you can't get all these new rights you're all clamouring for as self-employed, like in the gig economy, whether you're working for Uber or whatever, getting paid holidays or or rights. You, you, if you're getting all those rights, you've got a responsibility. The responsibility is you're getting away with murder and tax fronts. You've got to pay more taxes. Um, now, Labour, that's an opportunity for them. If, if the government does go down that route, Labour could say we're on the side of the little guy. We don't want taxes on self-employed. In fact, the government has really let them down. Um, uh, and, you know, this excluded group uh, is quite a powerful group um, uh, of several million people. And, and Labour knows that, and Andy Burnham has been pushing that agenda, that that's a, a strong, rich political vein for them. So I think it's it's complicated, but Labour, I can see why Labour's doing it. I just think over the long term, it's going to be very difficult. I think one of the one of the ways that Labour will try to win this argument kind of was set out by Rachel Reeves a couple of weeks ago when she talked a lot about how much the um, government had been spending on outsourcing. You know, it's kind of a sweet, a sweet spot for the Labour Party in that they get to talk about, say, Tory cronyism. But um, it also talks about, she also talked a lot about 
how much just the sheer amount of money being spent on that and that would go again to their credibility that they were trying to the credibility they're trying to build with how they would spend money yeah a lot of tory mps are annoyed about the treatment of self-employed and small businesses as well so it will be really interesting if if they get hammered as you say there paul yeah, the uh, so thing is that Labour keeps talking about it, but what's it actually going to do? You know, they talked about the self-employed under Tom Watson and didn't do anything. Um, yeah. You know, um, unless you get more people who've actually run a small business joining Labour and actually representing Labour, I suspect, you know, that agenda, people just think it's hot air. Yeah, well, I know Sonia's got to go, so it's time for the quiz. Yay! Yay. <laughs> uh, well, with much discussion of Carrie Simmons... This week's is all on Prime Minister's spouses. Oh. Or not in the case of the first question. Just shout the answer if you know it. Um, who is the last single person to be Prime Minister? Ted Teeth. Yeah, well done, Paul. Uh, he's, married to his, he's married to his piano. <laughs> question number two. Uh, which Prime Ministerial spouse said in a TV interview... I get to decide when I, when I take the bins out, not if I take them out. Shereen Blair? No, was it um, Philip Hammond? I mean, Philip... Philip, Philip May, May, yeah. Yeah, Philip May. Well done, Paul. Was it during, like, a one-show? Um... Yeah, cringe, yeah. cringe fest. It was the when Theresa May talks about uh, boys' jobs and girls' oh, jobs. Yeah. Well. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. So bad. Um, when you look back on that era, anyway... Uh, <laughs> what is what is Carrie Simmons' new job? I just said it earlier. Aspinall <laughs> Foundation. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I don't know what a job exactly job, job title is though, but it involves stroking a lot of leopards. I think. <laughs> uh, does anyone ha- want to have a stab at the job title for a point? No, is it like? I don't know if she had a. Could she just be a head of communications? She really? is. Yes. Uh, well done. Well, Paul's won the quiz, but a point for Sonia uh, keeps things decent. Um, Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels and please be sure to leave a review and get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. We'll just leave you with Tory MP Jonathan Gullis being reprimanded by Deputy Speaker Eleanor Lang for his casual appearance on video link to the Commons. We now go to, we now go, no, I don't think we do go to Stoke-on-Trent. The, the, the honourable gentleman has to be dressed as if he were here in the chamber. Um, so we will not go to Stoke-on-Trent. We will go, we will try to come back to Mr Gullis in due course, uh, but we will go now to Chesterfield, Toby Perkins. Thank you uh, very much, Madam Deputy Speaker. You'll see I've got all my clothes on and I'm sure you'll be pleased to know it, but... uh... Normally being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.